Mac Power Users, episode 423, Workflows with Jocelyn K. Gly. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I do not have my pal Katie Floyd with me today. She is, uh, I was going to say she was jumping out of an airplane to deliver needed medicines to orphans, but she blew it last week and said she had a conference she had to go to. So, so Katie can't be here this week, but we all know that I cannot be allowed to run the podcast without adult supervision. So we do have a guest. Welcome to the show, Jocelyn K. Gly. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Jocelyn, I'm so happy to have you on the Mac Power Users. Now, for those of you that don't know Jocelyn, she is a podcaster. She has a great podcast called Hurry Slowly, which I recommend you all just go sign up for. You can pause right now if you want to and go sign up for it. I, I, um, I, I, I'm kind of one of those old dogs that doesn't pick up a lot of new podcasts. I stumbled into to Jocelyn's podcast like January. I don't know, how long have you been running that show, Jocelyn? Is that when it started? It's been uh, since last October. Okay. So I came into it about halfway through the run. I went back and listened to all of them. It's just a great uh, podcast, especially for Mac power users and iPo- iPhone and iPod uh, power users, because it's it, it takes a look at technology in a way that we all kind of need to. And we'll talk a little bit about this show, but it's a great show. She's also a writer. Uh, one of her more popular books is Unsubscribe, which is kind of a book about the the uh, science and philosophy of email is that a fair statement yeah i would say so and um and really about kind of uh you know getting over our anxiety and our overwhelm with it yeah and it's just a great book and and then when jocelyn and i started corresponding via email i found out she's a huge apple geek and she's got all this apple stuff and all these ideas about how she's using it and what she's using so i said this would be the perfect show to have jocelyn on so so welcome to the show jocelyn thanks um, let's start, uh, cause like all nerds, we have to, to hear about your setup. So what kind of uh, stuff do you have on your desk? Um, it's pretty simple. Um, I have, I just use a Mac, um, power book. I think it's, I think it's a 2015 one maybe. Um, and I have one of those little Griffin stands that raises it. I have a wireless keyboard, um, and then a wireless trackpad. And that's kind of my basic setup. And then, um, you know, of course, I'm talking to you right now. I have kind of my iPods, or excuse me, my podcast setup going here. So I have my my fancy mic, and I have this uh, Apogee Duet uh, audio interface that I'm using as well. well. I want to talk about that stuff in, in a minute, but just uh, the do you have the MacBook, the one with the Touch Bar across the top? With the... I don't have. I got. I got it pre-touch bar, which oh, I okay. think is a good thing. I hear. Well, yeah. It, there's a lot of controversy <laughs> about that keyboard. And I, I was. I was curious <laughs> to see. But uh, so I, I think some people look at yours as, as the one to hold on to until Apple figures it out. But that's cool. Now, do you do you uh, use it on the road much, or do you mainly just work at your desk? I mainly just work at my desk. I'm really uh, sort of when I'm traveling or when I'm elsewhere, I'm kind of a, you know, let, let me actually be present elsewhere type of person. So I try to keep it pretty much on my desk. I just have a laptop, um, you know, cause sometimes I obviously need to use it elsewhere and use it for podcasting and stuff, but, um, I'm pretty, I tend to be a pretty, pretty stationary here. Yeah. We are hearing increasingly from listeners, uh, that are, now buying, you know, people kind of in your position generally 
that are buying iMacs. A lot of people are just going with the desktops because they feel that the iPad and the iPhone have got good enough that when they travel or, or get away from the home or the office, they've got enough to get their work done. But it, it, it's an interesting thing that's happening right now where where it used to be you just always got the laptop. But it feels like a lot of people now are starting to think about, you know, maybe a desktop is the right computer for them. Yeah, well, and I did. I did try to. I have an iPad as well, um, which I use primarily for remote um, podcast recording. And I just tried. I, I went home when I was home for Christmas. I was like, let me see if I can just work on the iPad. And I got one of those tiny, you know, Logitech wireless keyboards to hook up to it. Um, but that's still. And it might just be because I'm a writer and I'm so you know kind of addicted to having like a really good keyboard experience. But that still felt just like a little bit inferior to me. So I think for me, like the preference would be a MacBook Air for travel. I used to have one. I don't have one anymore, but I hear they're maybe coming out with a new one. And I was just like in love with that product. You know, that's, that's the most popular Mac, I think in a long time. People love that computer so much, but it is dated. I'll tell you. Yeah, totally. Now, when you, when you write, what, what is your weapon of choice for doing your writing in? Um, well, it's interesting. I use a couple different things. Um, when I'm sketching, it really depends on what I'm working on. So I do a lot of idea tracking and maybe blog post tracking in Evernote. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I'm just writing basic pieces, it's super boring. I just use Word. Um, but when I'm writing a book, I use Scrivener, which is kind of an older app, but one that I really like. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the kind of wonderful thing about Scrivener is it allows you to um, really map out um, a longer work in chunks. So you can kind of have, you know, independent documents for each chapter or even for references within a chapter. Um, and so when you're thinking about working on long-term projects, um, you know, one of the things that I think is so challenging, particularly with long-term creative projects, is that you kind of lose track of your progress, you know, and you kind of get into the weeds and maybe you lose motivation. And so it's really good for that because you kind of get to see the big picture, but then also get a feel like you're completing these little, you know, little chunks, which is kind of nice. Oh, no, I'm a huge fan. I've written several books in Scrivener. Um, we actually, what, like one of the very first episodes we did like nine years ago was on Scrivener. It's, it, that app has been around a long time, but it's just super powerful. And the idea that you can break your big writing project into what they call buckets of text or what I, I call buckets, I think really makes a huge difference for, uh, like you said, just getting the work done, but also just going back and reorganizing it. Um on the legal side, in fact, I think they featured me on the Scrivener website at one point because I was for for the longest time I was writing all my major legal briefs and long kind of opinion letters in Scrivener because it's even though it was a, a tool made to write novels, it's just a tool to write anything long with it. I, I think it's a great app. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's very much right. It's kind of almost based on more of that sort of screenplay like idea, right? Where you have the index cards and you can rearrange them. Um, and as you say, that's super powerful for restructuring, but also I just think like so powerful for keeping you motivated as opposed to, you know, if you're trying to write something really long in a Word document, you know, you just have that kind of like endless scroll and it's sort of, so it never really feels like you've accomplished or completed something until you know, the very, very finish. So I feel like it's just really powerful for keeping you engaged as well. 
I think another really great feature in Scrivener is the research function, because I actually use Ulysses, which is a similar app for a lot of my long writing these days. But but Scrivener's research ability, like you can drop PDFs and Word documents and literally just about anything into the application, and it saves it as a, a research resource. So when you've got like on on my big iMac, I can have it where I've got, you know, a PDF of some research on the left side and then my buckets of words on the right side. And it's just a really efficient way to get work done. Yeah, totally. And I haven't tried Ulysses um, yet, but I know people love it. Some uh, friends of mine who run the suite setup, did you see that they recently came out with like a course about all about using Ulysses? Yeah. Yeah. Sean, Sean Blanc's a friend. He's, they do great stuff over there. Um the uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great app too, but it doesn't support research as much. But I like the clean kind of writing environment that it provides. You know, the Scrivener gives you a lot more options, and if you need the options, that's what you need to use. But but for a lot of the stuff, I just got to get the the cursor moving. You know, Do you, now now when you write, because you write pretty serious stuff. I mean, I'm I know there's a lot of research and thought that goes into your books. Do you do you collect a bunch of research, or do you keep that stuff over in Evernote? Um. You know, I tend, I'm more of a kind of research as I go type of person. Um, when also, you know, I, I do a weekly newsletter, which is sort of, um, makes me kind of constantly track, you know, kind of what's happening. And basically I share sort of, you know, the best articles related to productivity and, you know, sort of, um, creative work and, and really just trying to do more, um, meaningful work on a daily level. And so, in doing that, it kind of keeps me on top of sort of, you know, reading, um, you know, a lot of the kind of like latest research in those different arenas. Um, but when I'm working on a book, I tend to be a little bit more um, like I have kind of an idea of a direction I want to go and then I'll go kind of dig into the research. But it's kind of more in parallel to writing than um, the other way around. Like some people just love to like really dig into research, you know, and kind of like collect and collect and collect and before they write. And um, I guess I'm a little bit more um, improvisational about it. Now, have you tried the Scrivener iPad app? I haven't. Oh, you're missing out, Jocelyn. You got you to download it. That may, be, that may allow you to, to work just off your iPad if that's where you're doing all that work because, yeah, they did a great job. It took them, it took them a long time to get onto iPad. In fact, there's a funny story. When the iPad first came out, the developer of Scrivener is kind of a friend of mine, and, and I said, you got to get on the iPad. When it first came out, they didn't even sell him in England. He's located over in England. So I actually, um, with his money, I sent him an iPad <laughs> from the United States because I, I wanted that app to get to the iPad so badly. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great app now over in the iPad. But, uh, but getting back to the iPad in general, you also use it for podcasting, you say. And that's when you told me that the other day, I was kind of surprised because most of us podcasting geeks um, do everything on the Mac. In fact, I was just telling you when I'm going up to WWDC, I'd really love to not bring my laptop. But recording the Mac power users is one reason I, I think I almost may have to. So so tell me, how have you structured your iPad so you can record on the road? Yeah, well, so originally I was actually using a Zoom H6, um, but... Uh, there were certain, I won't go into it. There was a couple of things I was, I wasn't totally satisfied with about it. And the way that it worked with a certain type of mic I was using was kind of like the gain levels were really poor. 
Anyway, um, so yeah, I use the iPad. Well, one, I use it on the road, but also, um, you know, I think as I told you and we were kind of chatting um, beforehand, I have my recording studio in my house is literally like in a closet. I live in New York, um, you know, so we have to do things like build recording studios in closets. And um, I actually can't like really fit my laptop in there <laughs> with me. Um, so I had to figure out another solution. And, um, because I use the, um, this Apogee duet audio interface that I mentioned before, um, that comes with, there's actually an app, a free app that they make called meta recorder, which works on iPad and iPhone. And it is like a super easy to use app for doing, um, multi-track recordings. Um, the Apogee duet has two inputs. So, you know, you can record two sides of a conversation. Um, and then using that app, you can, you know, isolate them as single tracks. And, um, but it's also really good. I record, you know, separately by myself in there, I record commentary, um, you know, that's at the top and the end of the podcast. And it's great for doing multiple takes of recording too. So if you're doing any type of like, you know, voice work in which you, for some reason need to do multiple takes, um, I find that app is really, really good for that. Whereas something like GarageBand, for instance, is like very clunky when you want to do multiple takes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I had no idea this product even existed. And and it looks like it's got, I guess, it has a lightning cable support. So you just plug it right into the iPad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, you know, it is, it's kind of impressive. So, and it gets enough power off of the iPad. Is that how it works? Or do you have to plug it into a power supply separately? Yeah, the duet has to be plugged into a power outlet or a laptop. So I, I run it out to you know like a power cord outside of my closet or whatever. But it does need it does need um, some type of power source. Um, it can't like just be powered from an iPad, for instance. It needs at least a laptop. Yeah, and and these aren't cheap. I mean, it's about I guess about six hundred bucks to get one. Mm -hmm. Is that the yeah? But but it allows you to record both sides off your iPad. Yeah. And, and Apogee, I mean, you can also record, you can use it to record instruments. Um, you know, it's not just a vocal tool. Um, it's a super simple tool for recording multiple tracks, you know, from any input source. So it's kind of flexible that way too, which is nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been listening to your show for a long time and I didn't realize, I, I just assumed you were doing like everybody else with a fancy mic plugged into a XLR interface into a Mac and, uh, so it's impressive. And and the other thing you do that I didn't realize and almost nobody does that I know is you go to locations. You actually go and interview your guests at their homes or place of business. Yeah, as much as possible. Um, you know, I think maybe 30 or 40 percent um, probably of the interviews this season um, are in-person interviews. And next season, I really want to see if I can, um, you know, if I can up that number. Um you know, I think there's benefits to interviewing people over the phone and there's benefits to um, interviewing people in person. Um, it kind of, you know, it, it really depends on what your preferences are. But I, I just really like to actually kind of make that personal connection with someone. It feels, I think when you meet them in person, it feels much more like you met them, much more like you know them um, than if you just sort of did an interview via the phone. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of designed the whole rig so that I can actually, f I have this... Um, it's a, it's a DSLR camera bag and I can kind of fit, you know, my two mics and the Apogee and the iPad and, you know, everything that I need in that. So if I need to like get on an airplane or get on a train and go somewhere, I can do that. 
Yeah, I was going to say, you're in New York City, so I'm sure a lot of uh, really good guests are, are local, but you even get on an airplane and go get a guest. Well, good for you. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think it's funny, too, because sometimes, um, you know, I'm sure you've been in this situation, you know, you want to have someone on the show and maybe they feel a little bit out of reach. Um, for me, one of those guests was this uh, economist, Tyler Cowen, who uh, recently wrote a book called The Complacent Class. He's someone... I've really admired his work for a long time and I emailed him and he teaches in DC, lives outside of DC. And, um, you know, I told him that I would come do the interview in person and I don't know, but I really think that he accepted the interview because it was clear that I was like so dedicated to it that I was willing to like get on a train and go there. Um, so I think that can kind of be like sort of an interesting selling point sometimes too. No, that makes sense. We've actually in the past mailed gear to uh, uh, guests, you know, where they don't have a good microphone. But I've, I've never got on a plane, but but I can tell you when, when we've done live shows, they're just better because when you can look at someone in the eye, it's a lot easier to have a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I've done some live shows as well. Um, and the energy is, you know, very, um, very, very different. Um but I do think one of the advantages of remote sometimes is sometimes it's a little more, um, I, you know, I don't know how much often this comes up for you on the show, but you can get people to like reveal a little bit more because it kind of feels like they're still kind of in hiding sometimes. Yeah, I get, yeah. It's, it's like when I used to play uh, video games with my nephews and they would tell me about their entire life. But if, as soon as you turn the game <laughs> off, they don't tell you anything. Um the uh, but anyway, I you know our show isn't the type where we get a lot of big revelations. The the, the revelations usually come from me because I do forget <laughs> that the people are actually listening. <laughs> um, but but the um, so tell me a little bit about your bag though, because I'm assuming if you're going to do these remote locations, you found some additional gear you've probably needed in addition to the Apogee Duet as you figure the stuff out. Um, yeah, I mean it's pretty simple, honestly. I have these like two little you know e tubby mic stands. Um, I have I use two SM7 mics. Um, I use the Duet, and then I have the iPad on the stand and that's about it. And then I bring, um, the most amusing thing that I bring is I bring like one of these, like, um, kind of, um, soft, uh, like yoga mat pads that I like lay over the table so that, you know, it dampens all of the noise. Like when, you know, you accidentally tap your hand on the table or something like that, but, no, um, that's, that's, that's a big tip. Though, really. It is. I mean, it's quite useful because, you know, most people who are sort of untrained at doing interviews and I used to do it myself, you know, you, you do hand gestures and you do things, you sort of end up tapping the table and, and it actually is quite, quite disruptive. Yeah, yeah. We always tell this is something we've never shared on the show before. But when we have a guest that doesn't do a lot of recording and they've got some tabletop mic, and we're about to record, and you can immediately hear that the tapping is happening because you've got a if you have a little tripod on your desk, even just hitting your keyboard or putting your your elbow on your desk is going to come out in the audio. So, so what you tell them is go get a bath towel and fold it up, and then put the tripod in the bath towel, and that that usually helps. But you know, yoga mats will work too. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by 1Password. Learn more and save up to 20% by visiting onepassword.com slash MPU. You know, there's a lot to love about 1Password. 1Password is the tool that I rely on to keep my digital life secure, safe, and always available to me no matter where I am. When you sign up for 1Password, you get access to all of their award-winning applications, whether it's for desktop or mobile. It works no matter where you are, whether it's on a Mac, whether it's on a PC, whether it's on iOS or Android. 
OnePassword is a secure digital wallet that allows you to storely secure information like credit card, receipts, secure notes, and of course, passwords. With OnePassword, you can automatically generate strong, unique, secure passwords for all of your various websites, which we all know is the single best thing that you can do to up your security game on the internet. And you're probably wondering, well, how am I going to remember all these crazy passwords? Well, with 1Password, you don't have to. They use their great tools to automatically fill in all of this information across the internet. You can fill in password information, credit cards, addresses, all of this information into a website with a single click, and you access it with your 1Password or with your fingerprint or your face. It's pretty amazing. 1Password has also implemented additional tools to help you up your security game. They have the 1Password Watchtower, which will give you round-the-clock security alerts for services and sites that you use that may have been compromised and let you know when you might need to tweak your security. Perhaps you're using the same password across multiple sites, or maybe a site has been pwned. And 1Password has also included a new proof of concept to let you see if your passwords have been leaked across the internet using Troy Hunt's new pwned password service another way to keep you safe online. So you can learn more about all of these awesome tools by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU to save up to 20% on 1Password and up your security game. Thanks to 1Password for their kind support of Mac Power users. Jocelyn, tell me about your iPhone. Uh, my iPhone, well, it is um, pretty uh, stripped down. I mean, I just I have one of the SEs, the only, you know, the last remaining tiny iPhone because I am a person with tiny hands. Um, and I, you know, I don't have much and I have like three things in my dock and, um, I only have 12 apps on the home screen because I like, I like to keep it kind of clean and kind of minimal. Um, you know, and then I do things like I have, like my email is like four swipe screens, um, away from the home screen. I am, I've really been, um, and this will probably make me somewhat unusual, um, in terms of your guests, but I've really been trying to do everything that I can to kind of, uh, decouple, um, many of my work activities, um, from the phone so that I, um, just, uh, feel a little bit less attached to it. So, you know, when I need to focus on things that, that have nothing to do with my phone, it's not that hard to do. <laughs> I have to unpack a few things there. Cause that, there was, that was a lot of information, but the, uh, I, I really, I'm with you. I, I think that, you know, there's this whole thing going on now and we'll talk about this later too in the show about, you know, uh, not getting so engaged with your devices and allowing you to kind of disconnect a little bit. But so, so one of the things you did is you put your, your email app four swipes away. So is it four different screens of apps that you have to swipe through to get to email? Is that what you do? Yeah, precisely. I did it because I used to have it in the dock and, um, we, we don't have to get into this now, but, um, it's kind of interesting. I actually ended up doing this, um, complete what I call like a no inputs diet for five days, a couple of weeks ago where I did, um, no email, no text, no internet, no Netflix, um, you know, no podcasts, right. So just kind of no inputs. Um, and to see what kind of impact that would have on me. And as part of that, I took my email out of the dock and I put it for, you know, four screens away so that I wouldn't see the notifications, um, when I looked at my phone and it was kind of amazing because when I did that, um, my phone just became this sort of like dead object, you know, there's like nothing. It just, it was like a regular landline phone. Like it just didn't do anything for me. Um, and it was really interesting to see how, how much I kind of still felt this impulse to look at it, even when it wasn't, you know, kind of going to really accomplish anything for me. So you did that for five days? 
I did that for five days. Wow. Well, well, how did that go? I mean, did you uh, did you get the cold sweats after a day or two, or did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had taken some earlier steps um, and done things like I had removed the Twitter app from my phone like weeks before then. So I had already kind of broken that addiction a little bit. Um, but uh, it was really interesting. It made me, re- I had, a, I mean, I had a couple of different realizations. I think one of them was, um, was how much, you know, you use kind of the, well, the other thing I should add is I also just didn't read anything for a week. So not only did I not read anything online, I didn't read any books or magazines or anything. So it was like very, very weird. Um, and it was actually, of course, incredibly boring at times. Um, but um, it made me realize how much kind of I use the phone or I use books or other media um, on the one hand, kind of for like companionship and entertainment. Um It also made me realize how much time I kind of, because I was alone with my thoughts, it made me realize how much time I sort of spend not being present, you know, being planning something or being in the future. Um, And then of course, you know, just how much you kind of interrupt yourself to use your phone, right? Because I would maybe interrupt myself almost out of habit, um, but then there was nothing to do on it. So I would become like quite conscious of that. Um, But what was more interesting was when I came back kind of online afterwards, um, you know, a lot of things that I had done before habitually, it could be like checking uh, download stats for my podcast or, you know, checking Twitter notifications, these sort of things that you do, you kind of check on, but they're kind of relatively meaningless. Like you don't really need to do it. Um, They just felt like very, very silly. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it, it kind of gave me, I think, a lot of a lot of pers- just a lot of perspective on my habits in that way. Yeah, and the idea because I, I I know I couldn't go five days. It's not because I don't think I'm capable of it, but just the way I earn my living, I I just can't disconnect from the world for five days. But but a lot of people out there probably are thinking about ways to do that in a smaller dose. You know, because time for introspection I think is important, and it's very hard to get it these days. Um, I've always kind of looked at like jumping into Twitter in the middle of the day as kind of like eating empty calories. You know, they don't really, doesn't do anything for you. And, and that's the challenge a lot of people are facing. And one of the reasons why, frankly, I want to have you on the show today is, is how do people find a way to go ahead and, and try and, and limit themselves a little bit on this, on the empty calories and spend the time with their technology, making something amazing, or even just putting it down and going for a walk and, taking the dog out or playing with their kids. And I think it is really hard for people. So, so one of the things you did, which was interesting was you put your email program four swipes away. And I, I think I get that because if I'm just sitting here and I look at my phone and I know that I have to swipe it four times to get to an app, how many times am I going to actually do that? Well, right. And even if you do do it, you're just more conscious that you are doing it, right? Because it's a little bit more of an effort um, than, you know, just having it on your home screen or in the dock. Um, I think even just those like little, little tiny tweaks that you make that make things a little bit more of an effort, sometimes it'll stop you from doing it. But even if it doesn't stop you from doing it, it just makes you much more conscious that you're doing it. And that alone, um, you know, I think can have an interesting um, impact on your behavior. Um one of the other things I did with my phone recently, I don't know if you tried this, was the um, doing the grayscale thing. Have you tried that? So you can, um, it's through like, 
accessibility settings. Um, and you, you can Google it. I think there's a life hacker article about how to set it up, but, um, you basically, um, you, it, it puts your phone in grayscale. So it makes your phone itself look quite sort of dead when you look at it. Um, and particularly, you know, anything like those little red notification badges, like you kind of just don't care about them anymore <laughs> because they're not red and they're sort of not glaring. Um, and you can set it up even so you can toggle between a grayscale and a color um, modality by just pressing the home button three different times. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing to do um, as well to experiment with um, because it just sort of makes the phone significantly uh, less exciting to look at. Or, you know, you look at something like a text message thread and you're sort of like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Katie and I talk about this all the time, but uh, I would recommend anybody listening to this that is getting a lot of those red badges or getting a lot of notifications on their phone to really take a half hour of your life and look through that notification setting on your iPhone. It's it, there. Every app you install wants to get give you notifications. And maybe there's two or three that actually should have the right. And it, it's really easy to have that thing constantly beeping and buzzing at you for stuff that is a complete waste of your time. Oh, absolutely. Now, whenever people have all of their notifications on, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like it, it blows my mind. Like I think I would have a nervous breakdown if I was getting that many notifications throughout the day. <laughs> well, it, it has one of two effects. Either they get distracted every two minutes or the notifications don't serve any purpose because they ignore them all. And then when the notification that comes through, that's super important about, you know, a family member in the hospital, they don't even see it. So it's just, you know, I, I, I feel like that, you know, when I look at my notifications at the end of the day, there's there's usually around five, maybe sometimes 10, uh, but never more than that. And I feel like that's just about enough. Maybe less would even be a little better, but I'm, I'm super stingy about it. And Apple's got a lot better over the years at allowing you to dial that in. For instance, if you use Apple Mail, you can have it so you just get notifications for VIP emails. So, so that's great because you're only going to get a couple of those, maybe one or two a day at the most. And that's much better than having your phone go off every five minutes because there's a good deal on Viagra. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm waiting. I really want that VIP functionality to extend to my entire phone, you know, so I can just say, you know, here's the, here's the five or 10 people who are important, you know, texts emails, phone calls, whatever, you know, I care about hearing from those people between this hour and that hour. And I really don't care about hearing from anyone else. Um, I know, you know, sort of technically that's quite complex to implement, but for me, that would be like the kind of killer app for my phone. It's just sort of like global VIP, you know, technology. No, I agree. And, and I think they also should try when they go that way. And eventually they have to, it would seem to me that they also make it location aware. So like when I leave work, I don't want to get notifications about work stuff. You know, I want to be able to leave work and not carry that home when I'm at my kids play or whatever. And I know everybody listening has different contexts and jobs where that might not be possible, but why can't we have the option? And, you know, what would happen if we didn't have to get emails while we were at our kids' play? It's not so bad. <laughs> um, the, another thing I would, uh, I talked about this on the on my blog recently, because I'm getting lots of emails from listeners talking about how they delete apps, you know, uh, because of these distraction problems. And that's never really been an issue for me. I'm actually pretty good at just not 
going into apps, but I thought one good interesting solution would be to make a, a not now folder, you know, like make a folder that says not now and just stick apps in it that are those empty calories for you. So when you go to it, you have to actually look at the word not now you know, <laughs> and say, well, do I really want to do that now or should I get back to finishing my work or should I go to the park or whatever? I, I don't know, it's, a, it's a difficult problem and, and our brains are just kind of adjusting to it, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, well, and I think um, one experiment um, that was recommended to me actually by um, Tyler Cowan, who I mentioned earlier, was, you know, going and deleting the four most used apps on your phone um, just for a week or, you, you know, you could say even for a couple days and maybe, you know, your four most used apps is a little too aggressive. You could just experiment with one. Um, you know, as I said, I recently removed the Twitter app from my phone. Um, and it's amazing to do that. Um, you know, even if you just do it for a limited time, because it really makes you conscious of how much you turn to that particular app. And, you know, for instance, now, I mean, I, I still, you know, it's almost like I still have, um, you know, like phantom limb, like Twitter feelings, you know, like I'll be like, oh, I could, I should tweet that, you know, and I'll have my phone in front of me and then I'll be like, oh, well, I don't have the Twitter app on here, you know, and then, so I don't do it. And, and it has no real negative impact on my life, you know? Um, but it's interesting that even still that impulse, um, remains, you know, and I deleted it, I don't know, four weeks ago, six weeks ago. Um, so, it's really interesting, even if you decide you want to bring that back, that app back into your life, just to delete it and kind of become really conscious of like how much you're using it and how much you're turning to it. Yeah, I think Twitter is a great example. Twitter and Facebook are really can be really vicious in the sense that your brain will, will run like a little subroutine at all moments. Can I say something funny on Facebook or Twitter about whatever I'm doing right now or whatever I'm seeing right now? And it's just this thing you, you, you're running through all day when you've got that on your phone. And I would imagine that even just removing the app isn't enough to deprogram yourself. It's going to take a little while to stop being constantly on the hunt for something clever to put on Twitter. Yeah, precisely. Or I think it almost creates this kind of meta consciousness, right? Like where you're watching yourself, watching yourself, you know, like you'll say something and it'll be like, oh, that, like, that was kind of clever. Like, oh, I tweet that, you know, <laughs> and, and um, you know, or whatever. It could be the same thing for Instagram. Like, oh, that was interesting. That's an interesting thing I noticed. Like, let me document that and share that with people, you know? And so you're kind of, you know, you, you create this almost like dual existence where you're existing in your life, but you're also sort of watching yourself existing in your life, which seems like a weird way of kind of not really being present with what's happening. No, I think you're right. You get lost in that loop and you, you actually don't, you actually don't experience the thing itself. So, so what are the 12 apps that made the cut? You know, you don't have any apps on your phone. What, what are the ones that, that after all this experimenting uh, still exist? Oh yeah. Well, there's a few more than 12 cause I have two of them grouped, but, um, I mean, some of the ones that I use the most are um, Evernote, you know, which, as I mentioned, I use to kind of track all of my ideas. And for me, one of the primary reasons that I use um, Evernote and that I have it on my phone is, right, that ability to be able to, like, capture an idea at any moment, um, which I think for me is sort of the best use of digital. Um, I prefer analog in almost every context except um, in particular with our regard to capturing ideas, because of course, you know, you always have your phone with you, generally speaking. Um, so I use Evernote a lot. Um, I use the, um, I use Reader a lot, um, which is, you know, an older app, but still super good. Um, I use that because- Is that the re Reader with two E's? Yeah, oh. Reader with two E's, the RSS 
feed sort of management app. Um, as I said, I, I do a weekly newsletter, so I'm sort of doing tons of, um, you know, tracking a bunch of different blog feeds constantly to kind of source stuff for that. Um, and Reader is just a really nice reading experience as well. It, it is a great app. And like they on the iPhone 10 now, they have a, an all dark mode. You don't have the OLED screen on your phone, but it's, it's, it's really nice. And the thing I always liked about Reader is it is super efficient at sharing articles. Like if you want to put articles in some other read it later service or save them for use later, I would assume that as you're processing or putting together your newsletter, you want to star them or do something. It's just a swipe and you can customize all that. So with reader, you can go through your feeds very quickly and, and tag and delete and star um, with just a few swipes of your thumb. Yeah. And I actually, I actually have kind of a symbiotic relationship between Evernote and reader where I basically go through every everything in reader. And then I, you know, create like sort of a links list in Evernote because I also source stuff from a lot of different newsletters that I follow and so forth. I have a funny thing, funny story that you would appreciate this. I, I used reader for the longest time and I stopped using it. And this is a very hurry, slowly type of problem. I, the reason is it was so easy to save articles to read later or put it into a read later <laughs> service and thing is I found one day I looked at my read later service. There was like a thousand articles in there. And I'm like, I'm never going to read all this stuff. But the problem is reader, it was just so efficient at allowing me to put them in that I was making, you know, I was already, I was writing a bunch of checks to myself that I was never going to cash. And, and um, so I actually went and found a different app. I'm using Unread now, which is actually more tedious to save an article. It's really pretty. That's the reason I ended up going with it because it's so pretty, but I made it more difficult for myself to like put an article off for use later because and then and then it went down to like 20 articles in my <laughs> queue instead of a thousand. Yeah, well, and that kind of gets back to that inputs thing that we were talking about, right? Like there's just so much media, you know, be it articles that you want to read and ways to capture them or podcasts that you want to listen to and ways to capture them that, you know, you can kind of constantly have this queue of stuff um, that you need to process. Um, but it leads to, I think, sometimes this really imbalanced relationship between sort of how much you're consuming and then how much maybe you're actually producing or, or creating. It's quite detrimental sometimes. Yeah. And it's easy to make yourself feel guilty. I mean, I saw a thousand articles. I would be like, oh, I need to like stop work for two days and read all these articles. But, you know, then the common sense part took over and I just deleted them all and started over again. Right. When well, we have email to make us feel guilty, you know, you yeah. don't need to add <laughs> yeah. something else on. Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> what are the other apps that uh, that you like to use? Um, I mean, one of the basic ones is 1Password that I use constantly. Um, I also use... Um, Edison email um, a lot for, which is for my email, I guess, as I said, that's not on the home screen, but of course that's one that I use a lot. Edison email. I actually, I have written books about email. And I've never heard of that app. What, what is it? It used to be called easily do email, but they changed the name to Edison. Um, it's a free app. It just has um, a couple of functions that I really like. And the number one among them is it has this like great one touch unsubscribe function. So if you get an email newsletter, there's like this big unsubscribe at the top of the email newsletter with an X on it. And you can unsubscribe with like one touch, you know, so you don't have to like pop out your email program, go into a browser, enter email, you know, et cetera. It does all that for you, um, which is great for just making it super seamless to like constantly clear out that kind of clutter of, you know, promotional emails that you get subscribed to that you didn't really think you were going to get subscribed to. Um, so I love that feature. And then they also have, just have, it has some nice like 
it's very easy to integrate with your Gmail and kind of sort things. So I like to sort things into different folders. One of them, which is a read later photo uh, folder. Um, I have another one, which is kind of a like rote work folder, you know, sort of mindless work. Um, and so it's really good for that. And it also does some cool stuff. Like it filters your travel into a specific folder. It filters your packages into a specific folder. It filters your receipts into a specific folder. Um, same thing with attachments. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty streamlined, but for me, honestly, it's like the, I think the unsubscribe is like the most addictive function because I just want to like constantly be kind of clearing that clutter out of my inbox. Yeah, I don't know how I missed this app because I'm looking and it's got some great reviews. Uh, now, does it work with, look, yeah, it works with uh, IMAP as well as Gmail. So it's not a Gmail only thing. I'll just, I'll just check it out. So this is your main email app now? Yeah, that's my main email app on my phone. And then on my computer, I just use Gmail. All right. What else? What else? Um, I use... Um, one of the other apps I really like is I use um, Wave for accounting, um, which is like a free, uh, you know, accounting um, app that's good for like small businesses or freelancers. Um, and they have a specific um, iOS app, which is called Wave Receipts, um, which is really good for just kind of taking photos and documenting your receipts. But it doesn't just like take a photo. It actually like processes the information on the receipt for you automatically um, with pretty decent accuracy so that you don't have to do that. Um, so it's pretty nice, um, for, you know, if you're a freelancer, you're running a small business, um, pretty low cost, basically like accounting and kind of like expense tracking. So that app is like pretty handy for kind of staying on top of that stuff. Now, does that connect to your accountant or or their service? Um, so, it, well, it connects to their service. And then it is one of those services like QuickBooks that you could also like, you know, invite your accountant to, you know, at a time of year, like now when you, you know, are about to do your taxes or should be doing your taxes like I am and uh, need to need to share all that stuff with your accountant. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Fracture. Visit Fracture.me and save 15% off your first Fracture order with the exclusive code Power 15. Fracture is a photo decor company that prints your photos directly onto glass and adds a laser cut rigid backing so they're ready to display right out of the box. They even include the wall anchor. Just upload your digital photo, pick your size. It's that simple. Take a minute and think about all those pictures on your iPhone. Wouldn't at least a few of those look good out of the digital ether and on your walls? That's what Fracture can do for you, and they make it super easy. All you do is upload the image, push a few buttons on the internet, and it shows up in the mail, and you can hang it up. I've been using Fracture for a long time. I really love the way the Fracture prints look. It almost looks like they've printed it on the surface of the glass, and with that backing on it, it's very stable. You can hang it on your wall. You don't even need to deal with finding a frame for it. Frame shopping is always the big hang-up for me when I get an image, and this removes that entirely. With the frameless design, your photos will stand out while still matching any decorating style. I like to take my fracture prints and move them around the house. I even have some seasonal ones, and it doesn't matter which room I hang them in, they look great. Fracture prints make thoughtful, unique gifts. If you ever find yourself in a crunch for what to give someone, just send them a fracture. They love it. You know, whether it's their dog or their kids or their grandkids, they're going to love having that picture hanging on their wall. And the unique way that the fracture prints are made make the gift extra special. And between you and me, you don't have to leave the house, and that's pretty special too. Fractures are handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. source materials. Fracture is a green company operating a carbon-neutral factory, or fractory, as you will. 
Either way, I love my fractures. I'm getting ready to finish another book, and I'm going to get my cover printed on a fracture so I can hang it on my wall to make myself feel good. I bet if you took a moment right now, you could think of a beautiful picture you have that you could hang on your wall, too. So head over to Fracture.me and save 15% off your first Fracture order with the exclusive code POWER15. And don't forget to select Mac Power users in their one-question survey to help support the show. Thanks, Fracture, for your support of the Mac Power users. Jocelyn, I'd like to take a minute. We've been kind of teasing the email problem for a while here on the show. Um, Why did you write the book Unsubscribe? Well, that is a good question. Sometimes I still to myself, think it's kind of funny that I wrote a book about email. Um, but the reason that I did is that I think that, um, I mean, number one, when you look at, you know, what is really distracting people in the workplace and what is really keeping them from doing, uh, you know, meaningful, productive work. I think that email is really the sort of number one distraction that people still face in the workplace. Um, so that's the first point, but I think the secondary point, and the reason why I was interesting, interested in writing about it at length is that I really think the email is sort of a microcosm of all of our struggles with technology. And so if you sort of understand email and you learn how to kind of master, uh, you know, your struggle with email, all of those skills and sort of strategies, um, you know, also pertain to all of the other technological tools that we use and to, you know, all of the tools that aren't yet invented, you know, that will be trying to, uh, you know, sort of capture our attention or distract us in the near future. Yeah, it feels almost like there's a war for our attention right now with all the technology. And, and I think a lot of people aren't even aware that it's going on. Yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, I think it's something that we aren't you know, we're just not used to having to manage our attention. That's something new. You know, I think self-management in general has been something that has really um, become a new thing, let's say over the past 10 years, you know, it's kind of the the workplace hierarchy has flattened as more people work freelance, more people work for themselves, more people work remotely. Um, and also people work on kind of multiple projects with different managers. Um, we all have to become better at self-management. And then now this kind of new layer of, um, you know, attention management has been kind of added, has been added on by, you know, these technologies that essentially are supposed to be kind of saving us time, right? Or helping us kind of stay in closer touch with people. But in fact, they kind of seem to be really kind of stealing our attention. And I think in many ways, kind of sapping our energy. This whole idea of immediate response. I mean, I've, um, I've been around long enough that when I first started as a professional, faxes were the highest tech that existed. And they were very unique. And email really wasn't even really getting started yet. So there was, you had a couple day grace period between the time you sent someone a letter and, and they got it. And I'm not sure that was worse in some ways, but the, uh, but email is, is a constant problem. And it is, I think the original violator of our attention. I mean, now we're getting things like Twitter and Facebook and Slack coming into our lives, but, but you're right. Email is the original battle for this stuff. Uh, what do you think the biggest problem is with email? Um, yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I like to think of email as sort of like the cockroach of the internet, right? Like you can't, it just sort of keeps, <laughs> keeps surviving. Um, 
There was a, a recent study that was done actually by the Harvard Business Review, and it was looking at how um, managers, um, senior managers specifically use their email. And I'm sure, uh, you know, probably a lot of people who listen to your show are, you know, probably in that type of role. And um, what they found was that those folks were spending about 50% of their time on email responding to emails that didn't need any response or that shouldn't have really been sent to them. Um, and if you think about how much time people spend on email, so typically, um, you know, most people sort of average these days is that people spend about almost 30% of their work week on email. Um, and if, you know, people are regularly, let's just say sort of wasting 50% of that time. That's like 15% of your work week, you know, that you're kind of wasting on email that could be better spent on something else. So, you know, writing the book unsubscribe was really, you know, an attempt to kind of look at this, like a very, very real, um, problem with email and how much kind of time and energy it's draining away from us and sort of, you know, figure out some strategies for tackling that. Yeah. I've always been lucky enough that I've, you know, I've been in a position high enough in whatever company I worked in or, or I own the company uh, now, my big <laughs> fancy company with one employee. Um, but the, uh, but I've always been in a high enough position that I can kind of dictate terms of email where I, I can tell people that, you know, I don't check email more than once or two or three times a day. And so don't send it to me like a text message because I won't see it. But there's a lot of people out there listening that don't have that option. They've got bosses who send them emails and think of it as a text message and don't understand why they don't get a reply every five minutes. And they've got this underlying kind of angst in their lives that they've always got to be checking it. What are some things those people can do? Yeah, well, I think that I think that is true to a certain point. Um, but I think that it also is very common that we sort of take this kind of like poor me attitude towards email and and don't acknowledge how complicit we are ourselves in setting those expectations, you know? So it's like, well, if I respond to, you know, your email within five minutes every time I receive it, like, of course, you begin to expect me to respond within five minutes. So, you know, our behavior is in some ways dictating um, those, it, it's dictating some of that urgency often. Um you know, in terms of things that people can do, I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I'll come back to your your kind of comment about, you know, needy bosses or bosses who are demanding afterwards, but um, I mean, really batching your email is kind of like the number one biggest shift. Um, there's, there's some hard research that kind of looked at, um, you know, how people process their email and particularly for people who received a high volume of email, um, batching their email. So checking it, you know, maybe only two or three or four times a day, specific windows, and then really, you know, kind of powering through their inbox in those windows, um, not only made them more productive, it also made them happier and it made them less stressed than um, processing their email in sort of this, you know, kind of reactive notification driven way that many of us do. Um, and it, it, some of the researchers also found that there literally is like a direct correlation between how frequently you check your email and how stressed out you feel. <laughs> um Right. Which is like not surprising, but like it's kind of funny that that's literally borne out by research. And I would think that that would also spill over into Slack and instant messaging and those other things as well. I am sure. But yeah, so I think, I mean, switching to a batched approach um, is super crucial. And I think also the thing that that allows you to do 
is when you're sort of batching your email as opposed to processing them kind of one by one is that allows you to be a lot better at triage. Um, because right, we're all at this level where we're getting a, you know, a higher volume of emails than we could ever really be expected to respond to. You know, a lot of people are getting 100, 200 emails a day. You know, if you were getting 100, 200 physical letters a day, like you would never think that was a reasonable amount of stuff to respond to. But somehow with email, we're like, yeah, like I should be able to do that. You know, we feel guilty if we can't. Um, and so I think we really have to kind of move to this place where where we look at e email much more as sort of like a triage situation or a situation where it's like, okay, well, not everything is important, you know, and not, maybe not everything even needs a response. And when you process your email in batches, when you process your email in groups, you're more able to kind of see the relative importance of the emails um, as opposed to when you kind of go one by one, it's sort of like everything almost has equal importance. Um, so I think that's the biggest shift. But, you know, if you're someone who is, um, you know, has a boss who um, just has the type of expectation where, you know, they want to hear back from you 10 minutes after they email with you, um, or maybe you have clients um, with whom you're in that situation, um, then I think that's when you have to kind of go to the like batched plus uh, VIPs solution. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, Apple Mail, VIP notifications. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I have to be constantly monitoring my email because, you know, I have to get back to this person or that person. But the amount of VIPs that you really have to respond to with like that level of frequency, you know, I think is usually only like one, two, three, maybe like five people. So, you know, just set those people up as VIPs, you know, get a push notification so that you can then feel comfortable ignoring your email, you know, when you're not in one of those batched windows. But, you know, all messages are not created equal. Like every message is not urgent. So I think it's important to just only to really identify who does need an urgent response and then just kind of, you know, give those people those special privileges. Yeah, and, you know, and I would even add to that, that when you've got the boss that gives you a hard time, that maybe, you know, try educating them, you know, explain to them that you can't focus on your job if you're constantly supposed to be checking email. And, you know, an email really isn't the right place for that. Like if, if, the, if something's really urgent comes in, say, look, call me and I'll answer your phone, I'll answer your questions immediately, but, but don't send it to me as an email. I, I once, uh, when I was, uh, when I was doing, uh, I, I, I do a lot of transactional law now, but I used to do a lot of litigation. I had a judge call me once and say, Hey, I sent you an email like two hours ago and you didn't respond. And I'm like, well, that's because I haven't looked at email yet. And he says, yeah, but I'm a judge. I'm like, well, I don't really care. You know, that's just not the way I do email. And, and he laughed at me about it. And then the next time we saw each other, we had kind of a good, good laugh. Cause you know, they're not used to having people say that to them, but, but you know, you can get away with it if you do it you know, carefully. Um, I can tell you for me, the big changing point for email was when I realized, because I, I, I have violated every sin that you talk about in your book and, and I get hung up on it. And as the podcast got popular, we were getting so much email and, and I had this self image problem where my self image was, I'm the guy who answers all the email promptly and everything. And I give a thoughtful response to every email that arrives and then I didn't really think about it. I just accepted that about myself until I realized in making that decision to be that guy, I'm also deciding that I'm not going to write any more books and I'm not going to have time to do more podcast prep. And all of a sudden I started realizing the cost of all that. And then my self-image changed, but I'm not the guy that's going to answer every single email and, I, and I'm okay with that. And I think that's something a lot of people need to kind of face. 
Yeah, I think 100%. You have to look at those trade-offs and you have to look at those opportunity costs. And you need to do that with an email, but kind of within the larger span of things. Um, You know, I said earlier that I think that email is sort of a, you know, microcosm or like a metaphor for our kind of larger digital challenges. And I think that um, one way that I like to look at it, or one way that I like to think about it is kind of thinking about now and this is new, right? In the past sort of five to 10 years, we don't just sort of have this one self. We have two selves. We have our physical self, like our real body that exists within time and space and only has 24 hours a day. And then we have our digital self, right? Which exists sort of, you know, in the ether and has, is comprised of all these different inboxes, right? You know, your email inbox, your Twitter inbox, your Slack inbox, your LinkedIn inbox, what have you, they go on and on and on, right? How many of these inboxes do we have? But the digital inbox has you know, a sort of infinite capacity, right? Whereas you in your physical body have a finite capacity, you know, you don't, you have a limited amount of energy, you have a limited amount of time, but your digital inbox and what comes into it bears no correlation to those limits, right? Like it's never like, oh, you know what? Like David's got enough to do, like, and just turns it away, (laughs) you know? It's a monster that is never satisfied. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so when you like kind of think about that and understand that metaphor, it becomes very clear that literally like setting boundaries and saying no is not just like a skill that we need. It's sort of like the most important skill that we need in this kind of technological era with this kind of proliferation of these, uh, you know, digital inboxes, because you're never going to be able to process it all. So as you say, I think you have to really um, start thinking about it in terms of trade-offs and, um, you know, start thinking, um, less about it through the lens of, you know, oh, this person who's, you know, writing me an email or tweeting at me is like definitely expecting me to say yes to maybe more of a default position. Well, like, you know, actually maybe they're expecting me to say no because everybody's busy. I'm busy. They're busy. Um, you know, so that you don't kind of have this guilt around, um, you know, not being the person who processes every email or not being the person who says yes to everything. Now, I'm guessing there's a few people listening to the show today that are saying, yes, I have an email problem. I need to start getting better at this. What are some some basic steps people can take to uh, to help themselves escape the trap? <laughs> um, so many. Um, to list a few, I mean, I think besides um, batching... Besides read the book? <laughs> besides read the book, guys. Go buy my book. Um, I think besides batching, um, another big shift, one that I find really helpful um, is kind of quarantining your email on a separate screen. So, you know, whether you use a laptop or use a, you know, um, a full computer at your desk, um, you know, maybe putting your email only on your iPad or only checking your email, um, on your phone, particularly like when you're in a moment when you don't really want to respond to it, but maybe you just feel like you need to check it. Um, you know, just in terms of sort of research around email research around distraction, you know, even if you have your email like minimized in the background, it's sort of been shown that it's still, um, you know, draining away some of your attention because your brain kind of knows it's there and it's sort of like thinking about it. Um, so moving it to a separate screen, I think is really helpful. Um, and for me, like, you know, when I feel like I want to focus on something on my laptop, but, 
I need, you know, maybe I need to glance at, you know, just see if an email's come in or something. I then I'll do that only on my phone, and somehow it, it creates almost like this physical distance um, from it, and almost a physical distance from um, the anxiety in a way. So I think kind of quarantining your email on a separate screen is very useful. Um, Another thing that I think is useful that people don't think about a lot, and this is less about email overload and more about um, kind of when you're reaching out to people, is um, previewing messages that you write on your phone. Um, you know, we all have those messages that we write where you're writing a really important pitch. It's a really important ask. It's an email that you really want someone to pay attention to. Um, and a lot of times when you draft those things up, um, you know, on your computer screen, um, it looks like a reasonable length. And then you like open it up, you know, on an iPhone and it looks like war and peace. Um, so especially when you're right, when you're thinking about those things that you really want someone to pay attention to, you know, we're all time pressed, uh, we all have a very limited sliver of attention that we're willing to devote to someone um, that we don't know or that we don't know well. Um, and so previewing those like super important emails on your phone to make sure that, um, you know, the person who's going to get that on the receiving end, it's going to feel like something that's kind of reasonable and digestible. Um, that's another good one. A basic, I mean, I think a super basic rule that I've been thinking about a lot lately is just don't treat emails from people you don't know as urgent. It's just like the most simple rule. And kind of like the most obvious rule, but I think something that we don't do very often, you know, because we think that, um, you know, new people who show up in our, in our inbox, people we've been connected to, you know, they might be presenting us with interesting opportunities and certainly they might, but that's kind of more of a rarity. Um, you know, typically it's more of something that's probably gonna, um, you know, maybe drain away a little attention that you don't necessarily want to give away. Um, so I think always kind of thinking about, um, you know, who are, we talked earlier about VIPs, but really thinking about, you know, kind of as you process your inbox, um, you know, those kind of almost like, uh, concentric circles of sort of the importance of people, you know, who's in that inner circle, who are the VIPs, like who are your key collaborators? Who are those people? Um, you know, who are the people who are sort of acquaintances and then who are the people who are strangers and that all of those different sort of groups of people, um, you know, necessitate different response times. And some of them might resuscitate, you know, might, um, only warrant, you know, no response and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd add a few tips to that. Um, one, one pro one trap I fall into almost daily is uh, a lot of times the stuff I do involves me having to send someone an email. And so you're sitting, you're being great. You've got email closed. You're not even looking at it. You're not even thinking about email. You're getting through your list. And then a task comes up that you got to send an email to a person. So what happens? You, you open the email app and suddenly there's your inbox and there's names there and there's messages and maybe the opportunity of a lifetime is there and you decide oh, I'll just click on one. And then the next thing, you know, 15 minutes have gone by and you still haven't written that email. You opened the email to, to deal with. And uh, that's a trap I fall into. Uh, uh, one of my personal hacks is I use apps for that. Um, like there's a great app called card hop on the Mac where you can send an email, you can open up a compose email window without really going into the mail app. It just opens the compose window. And there's a bunch of different ways to do this. I mean, there's all these different apps that you can do it on the Mac of, you know, push a few keys on the keyboard, you know, key, uh, keyboard maestro could do it. And, you know, all, you know, Alfred could do it. You know, so you just find a way to, to start an email without looking at your inbox. And if you can do that, make that a habit. 
Yeah, no, I think that's super crucial. And there's one that I use sometimes called um, Inbox Pause, which works with Gmail. And now actually I think with Outlook as well, um, you know, that literally just hits pause on your inbox. And that's nice because then you can still, because a lot of times, right, you need to go into your email to dig up something in order to res- respond to one of those emails. Um, so that allows you to just kind of be like Gmail, like don't check my email until I, you know, turn off pause, um, which I find super helpful. Um, and you're making me think of one other um, thing that I do a lot that I find really helpful is just thinking about um, when people is sending what I call kind of expectation setting replies. Um, because I think so much of the urgency around email is, um, you know, whatever, let's say I sent you an email and I don't really know, you know, if you got it, I don't know if you looked at it. I'm not really sure if you're going to respond. It's kind of like this black hole. Right. And so I can kind of fill that up with anxiety. And so, um, what I try to do a lot when I get an email from someone and particularly when I know that like they feel a response is urgent. Um, but maybe, you know, there's a lot more things on my docket that I feel are urgent, you know, that I need to do ahead of that thing. Just like sending them a quick expectation setting reply, you know, saying, you know what, like I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in meetings all day. Um, I got your message. I understand it's important, you know, and I'll respond to you first thing tomorrow. And that kind of like allays the anxiety and then kind of everyone can move forward, but allows you to kind of, um, I think, regain control of your schedule and also like not feel sort of put upon by that anxiety that you know the other person has. Yeah. And and when you do that, like I use Text Expander to do that, I have a snippet. And what I would say is make sure that if you are doing that and you give them a time period, which I think is a reasonable expectation, you say, I'll get back to you within two days of this, then you need to have a system in place where you can hold yourself accountable because you don't want to send that reply and then miss that second date. Yeah, absolutely. And same thing, I was talking about um, the Edison app that I use earlier for email, which allows you to snooze things, you know, so that's something where you could then use like, you know, a snooze function, like bring this back tomorrow or whatever, which is kind of handy for doing that. Yeah. So do you snooze much with email? I don't because I kind of, I mean, personally, like I think some people find it useful, but I'm kind of like deal with it or move on, you know? (laughs) You know, I, I have, that was my initial, I used to make fun of it. I'm like, what a dumb feature. You know, all you're doing is putting off a problem to another day, but it actually works for me. I use it with a Sanebox, which is, you know, full disclosure, a sponsor, but the, um, yeah, Sanebox is great. Yeah, but you know the, the idea for me was uh, like I get a lot of emails from listeners that have questions that they would you know that, that I'd like to respond to, but I don't want to put it into like an omni-focused task or I don't want to turn it into a whole thing. And for those, just just hitting a a sandbox snooze is actually uh, the most efficient way to deal with it. And if I snooze too often, sometimes I'll end up not responding and and just archiving. But but I, it, it gives me a way to kind of manage the 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 load. Yeah, no, I think it makes total sense. And whatever works for you, that's one of the things I think is kind of funny about, about productivity advice is like, certainly, you know, I, I do things my certain way and I can give people tips, but I think that, you know, people feel sort of, um, more ownership when they kind of design their own system. Um, and it's really about, you know, whatever works for you. If, you know, if snoozing works great, if just like leaving it as an unread message, you know, uh, works for you, like do that. You know, I think it's, it's kind of whatever, whatever works. It's more about, um, as you were saying at the top, just thinking about those opportunity costs and those, and those trade-offs. Um, I frequently, um, give a talk that kind of talks about distraction in the workplace. And, um, I open it with this kind of like terrifying numbers about, um, you know, how much of your life you could spend, 
on email, kind of the average amount that, um, the average amount of time that people are spending on email right now. And it's, you know, I think it's something like over the course of, you know, your professional career, um, you know, let's say like 40 years, um, the kind of average amount of time that people spend on email, you could end up spending like three and a half years of your life on email, (laughs) which is like so distressing when you put it in those terms. (laughs) (laughs) This episode of MacPower Users is brought to you in part by the Omni Group. You can learn about the amazing suite of productivity apps over at omnigroup.com. This week, I want to tell you all about the new Omni Outliner 3 for iOS. This was recently released by the Omni Group last month, and it's a big update that catches up to Omni Outliner 5 for Mac and adds iPhone 10 and iOS 11 support, along with a whole lot more. There are a couple of different versions of Omni Outliner 3. There's the Essential Versions, which is brand new version of Omni Outliner, and just like Omni Outliner 5 for Mac, it also brings a whole new price. Essentials is just $9.99 for new users. With Omni Outliner Essentials, you'll be able to create amazing outlines on the go. You can choose from a template or apply a theme to an existing document from Omni Outliner's template picker and get started right away. Essentials brings a lot of great features such as dark mode, drag and drop support, keyword filtering, a simplified inspector, and printing documents or exporting them as PDF. There's also a brand new file format which adopts the new .outline format introduced by Omni Outliner 5 for Mac. This is a flat format that is compatible with more third-party sync services. And if you need a little more power, there's also the Omni Outliner 3 that features all of Essential's great features, plus it includes Omni Automation, their new cross-platform scripting with JavaScript, as well as a focus feature that's been added to give you an overview and focus on certain areas, as well as the ability to export to PowerPoint, Keynote, and to work with OPML. Best yet, you can try Omni Outliner for yourself to see if you like it. You can download Omni Outliner 3 today and get a free trial. You can upgrade to the Essentials or the Pro version, which is available via an in-app purchase. So you can try all the features now and decide whether you want to buy it. You can learn more either through the App Store or by visiting omnigroup.com. So thanks to Omni Group for their continued support of Mac Power users. Jocelyn... Hurry Slowly talks a lot about subjects around putting limits on your technology. And, you know, this is a show about power users. We love technology, you know, but uh, but why is it important that we at least think about these things? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what you and I were uh, talking about earlier, which is really, uh, you know, managing your attention. And so many of the, uh, you know, the apps and the tools that we use um, today really are kind of, you know, designed to kind of steal or, you know, capture as much as possible, um, as much of our attention as possible. And so I think that that requires that we, you know, be significantly more um, mindful and um, proactive about, you know, how we're using our attention and how we're using our focus um, than we've ever really had to be before. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about our phones earlier. Like if you think about, um, you know, the smartphone in particular and, um, you know, how many different um, kind of tools and uh, gestures and activities that it's replaced in our lives, you know, kind of all the different things that we used to have to carry around um, with us, you know, whether it was like carrying a, you know, physical calendar or carrying a journal to take notes or, um, 
you know, turning on the TV to check the weather or carrying around a Game Boy to play a video game, you know, all of these different things um, that we used to use different tools for have been like collapsed into the smartphone, right? And so it's just become this like attention magnet that we like turn to again and again and again, because we use it to accomplish so many of the goals um, that we need to accomplish in daily life, right? But that also creates this kind of addiction to the phone that, um, you know, when we want to accomplish goals that don't have to do with looking at our phone makes it kind of quite hard to pull ourselves away. And so I think, you know, the the show isn't exclusively about technology, but we end up exploring that a lot because, um, you know, I think figuring out how to set boundaries with technology is really one of the biggest challenges that we face right now. Yeah, I do think that we've all been so obsessed with the good and there is so much good that comes of these things that we we haven't thought that much about how there are negative problems too. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've had some certain themes that have um, kind of been percolating throughout the first season of the podcast. And and one of them has really been like an analog versus digital theme. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is how frequently, um, you know, we just kind of default to doing a task on the computer because, you know, we just sit at our computers all the time. We just happen to be in front of them all the time. But frequently that is maybe not the best place to start a task. And I think actually in particular with, um, you know, creative really any type of work that that involves some type of creative thinking, you know, the computer is usually not the best place to start. So I'll give you one example. Like recently I had to, uh, you know, write a, write a talk that I was going to give. And so I had keynote open and I was using keynote and I like kind of had an idea of what I wanted to talk about, but it like really wasn't very clearly, you know, articulated in my head. And so then I was like building out the keynote, you know, and I was getting like super into like the fonts and then I was getting into finding images and, you know, but I started like getting into all these details and then it was like, well, what are you even trying to say? Like, I don't even know, <laughs> you know? And so I kind yeah, of... And keynote's the wrong place to figure that precisely. out. Precisely. And keynote's the wrong place. And I think like my computer was the wrong place, you know? So it's like, I stepped away from that computer. I got out a big sketch pad. I like went over, sat on a sofa, you know, like outlined the broad strokes of what I wanted to say. And then I came back to my computer once I knew, you know, exactly what I wanted to execute on. And then I like banged out the presentation in a couple of hours, you know, probably like the fastest that I had ever done that type of thing. And so, and I found that to be true for sort of really any type of creative endeavor that um, really the kind of analog space, whether it's like a sketch pad or a whiteboard or a blackboard, you know, for kind of exploring ideas and like mapping things out and, and brainstorming and kind of getting into those broad strokes, like the analog space is really, really good. And then when you kind of know, you know, exactly what you want to do, um, when you're kind of really ready to execute on that idea, then like, that's when you kind of want to go to the computer or, you know, whatever piece of technology that you're using. I think I've shared this story on the show before, but I, I am also kind of into woodworking. I like making furniture. And years ago, I took a course from this famous woodworker named Sam Maloof. And at the time, I was in my like early 20s, and I was obsessed with all of the like fanciest tools. You know, I think that's kind of natural as you get into stuff, right? You want to have the best tools. So I'm asking Sam, you know, what his chisels are and what he uses. And he says, look, I use whatever I need. If I have to, I use my teeth. And, you know, and I... 
you know, it was kind of shocking to me. This guy who sells rocking chairs that sell for like $50,000 is telling me how he uses his teeth to make his chair. And, but, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. And I feel like that's kind of where we are with the technology stuff. And, and looking at you is a good example. Cause I know I like the idea of analog tools. I, I have a notebook. I write my stuff down in a notebook too, with paper and a pen, but I also am super into the digital stuff. And, and you, who has a podcast about disconnecting from this stuff, you rely on Evernote to really hold it all together. Yeah. Well, and I think it's just about what the best, um, you know, it's about what the best tool is for the job. And I think I was saying earlier, for me, Evernote is is one of the only apps that I use that actually um, was a superior experience to analog because say, you know, sort of pre-Evernote, um, you know, what would happen is I would have all of my ideas scattered across, you know, different moleskins or, you know, little tiny notebooks or sheets of paper. And it was really difficult to kind of, you know, go back and find that stuff and, and piece it together and link it together. Whereas with Evernote, you know, when you kind of have notes inside of notebooks, it basically um, collects everything and groups everything in this way that really allows me to see um, ideas ripening. So, you know, if every notebook is represents one idea, you know, certain notebooks will have like 90 notes in them, you know, whereas another notebook might only have two notes in it. And it's kind of like, oh, wow, like this one with 90 notes is like, I'm really like, you know, I'm really jamming on this idea. Like it is really ripening. Like there's really something going on there, you know, whereas the other one with two notes is like, oh, that was something like maybe just kind of, you know, like a brain fart that I like thought was a good idea. And then, you know, just have not really been enchanted with since. Um, and in the analog space, it would be really, really difficult to do that. Um, so, you know, certainly there, I mean, obviously there are many, many applications in which, um, digital is, um, superior. I just think that we have to really question this idea of defaulting to digital. Um, and I think also you can really get into that space of kind of, you know, obsessing over your digital tools. Um, and, having the sensation that the tool alone is going to make you productive. Um, I think that's a real trap that you can kind of get sucked into, um, getting a little bit too obsessed with the technology or getting a little too obsessed with the tools as if the tools kind of, um, almost, uh, stood in for the creative process itself. Um, or, or a source of distraction, you know, uh, or <laughs> yeah, a way yeah. to avoid doing the hard work. Yeah. When I think I was, I was thinking the other day, like, I mean, I think one thing that's kind of amazing about creativity and the creative process in general is that it like actively resists efficiency. Like, you know, we're always kind of looking for shortcuts, but it's sort of like creative tasks just take as long as they take, you know, and you can't rush it. You know, you can just kind of show up, whether you're showing up with a notepad or you're showing up with a computer or however you're showing up, you know, and it just kind of takes as long as it's going to take. And so I think, um, you know, we can sometimes get lured into the idea that having the right tool or the right app is going to help us um, shortcut that. But you kind of always have to put in the work, as you were saying. Yeah, I feel like uh, partly listening to your show and and some others, I have um, earlier this year, I decided I'm going to have a, a an actual notebook every day. So I'm going to write down because I use I use uh, some very powerful software, OmniFocus and fantastic these great apps to manage my calendar my task list but the the problem is uh, having a publishing business and a legal practice it's it's an unending bucket of things that i have to do and i thought what if i just want to write down each day what i'm going to get done that day and i thought 
my initial reaction was this is going to be a huge waste of time. You know, it's like, I'm already too busy. Um, why would I want to do this? And I found that it actually has worked really well for me because first of all, it doesn't take that much time to write a few things down. It's just that I've been using computers so long that I forgot that it doesn't take that long to write things down. <laughs> and secondly, having a book open on my desk throughout the day kind of keeps me centered and, and going through the day. And, and I, I do think there is a middle ground now. You know, I think that there is a place for people you know, because a lot of us got enamored with the technology, but it, it's, I'm not saying we should give up on the technology at all, but I think we should look at ways to find whatever works for us in whatever way, just like Sam Maloof and his teeth. <laughs> totally. Well, I think that we forget sometimes that there is this kind of, um, you know, little, literal muscle memory to writing things down. I write down all of my to-do lists by hand and often I don't really need to look at them again because, the act of writing it down has kind of stuck it in my brain in a way that really doesn't happen in digital for some reason. Um, there's even some interesting research around um, note-taking that was done with like college students in classrooms. I don't know if you saw this study, um, but it found that when students took notes by hand versus when they took notes on a laptop, they tended to have much better um, retention of the ideas. And Part of that, or at least the kind of thinking around why that is, um, is that um, taking notes by hand is slow. And there's something that's actually good about the slowness, which is that, you know, when you take notes on a laptop, they could actually type, you know, maybe verbatim what was being said. But when you can't go that quickly, you actually have to sort of synthesize the ideas as you're taking notes, right? And that act of synthesis itself, um, you know, kind of makes it stick in your brain and makes you process the ideas um, more thoroughly than you would if you were just taking notes um, on a laptop. And I think, you know, same thing goes for to-do lists or same thing goes for kind of, you know, mapping out your outline or kind of your goals for the month on paper is there is this sort of memory in the hand and there is this sort of um, additional layer of synthesis that kind of happens when you're doing things in an analog way sometimes. Yeah. And I think that this is a good time to start thinking about that stuff. I mean, where does it fit in your life? I mean, we've got the tech, but where does the analog stuff still have a place? Yeah. And I know a, a number of people who, you know, have done kind of interesting setups like that. Like one interview I did was with um, Austin Cleon, who's a writer and an artist. He wrote the book, uh, Steal Like an Artist. And he and his office setup has an analog desk and a digital desk. So he has the analog desk where he has, you know, kind of always this sort of drawing and art tools. And then he has digital desk where he has his computer, um, you know, and, you know, kind of all his recording equipment and all the other different stuff that he uses there. And so it's kind of this, you know, he gets to do sort of a, a context switch, right. Um, when, depending on what type of work he's doing, um, or, you know, other people who have, you know, kind of like a specific, uh, you know, say like kind of analog reading chair or like kind of a brainstorming reading chair, um, you know, where they go when they want to kind of just um, be offline. And I think there is something actually to that kind of physical context switching um, that, you know, you, you um, aren't just, you know, maybe swiping to a different screen or a different space on your Mac when you want to switch context, but you're actually literally moving your body physically to a different space. And there's kind of this like memory with that. That's almost like, okay, now, you know, when I'm in this space, I do this type of work. Yeah. The brain is such an interesting organ because we can sit here and conspire with our brains, how to fool our brains. And it works. It really <laughs> does work. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. 
So make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name and award-winning templates and more. What do you want to create next? Maybe it's an online store or a portfolio for your photos, or maybe even you want to start the next great tech blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. And I can testify to this because I've been using Squarespace for years. And occasionally, if I have a problem, I send them an email and they get right back with me. They've got help centers all over the globe and they seem to be always watching that email inbox. They also let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And with Squarespace, if you subscribe for a year, the domain name is automatically attached to your account. So there's really nothing else to worry about. You don't have to go to other websites to get your website rolling. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. One of the other things I like about Squarespace is the fact that Squarespace sites don't all look the same. The templates are unique and special, and as a user, you can go in and make easy adjustments to the template to get it looking just the way you want. The MaxSparky.com website, for instance, is a very customized version of the Squarespace template, but I did it all myself without hiring anyone, and I'm really happy with the way it came out. I was using uh, WordPress for the longest time, and I used to have a bunch of problems with my plugins not working or getting updated and you know, having hacking problems and all these other issues. When I switched to Squarespace, all those problems just went away. Having one company manage the hosting and build the engine for me, it just makes it really easy because there's only one person I need to deal with if there's ever a problem. And in my experience, at least, it's been much less vulnerable to any problems from the outside world. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start with a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. So whether you need to build a website or you need to help somebody else with their first website, get them on a Squarespace site. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the Mac Power users. Make your next move with Squarespace. Jocelyn, an episode of Mac Power Users wouldn't be complete if we didn't have you share a few of your favorite apps on your Macs and iPhones and iPads that that delight you or help you get through the day. I know. I'm trying to think um, because I am one of your one of your uh, guests who has probably fewer apps than other people. I'm like, which apps have I not shared yet? Um, well, one app that I use a lot, which in fact I'm using right now, um, is Zencaster, which is a great um, app for podcasters specifically or for um, recording audio. And it works through the web browser. Uh, seems to work best actually in Chrome. Um, and it's kind of cool because it records, you can record you know, two sides of a conversation. Um, and it records really high quality WAV files. So it records and an MP3. It kind of records the MP3 basically like live um, while you're having the conversation. So if you get cut off, you at least have a high quality MP3. But then it also um, records a high quality WAV file, which happens independently on each person's computer. And so at the end, you just kind of have to wait a couple minutes for it to um, upload. But so that's what I've been using for the podcast when I've been doing remote interviews. Um, and that's worked really pretty well. You know, and podcasters, myself included, we all seem to universally hate Skype and all the problems <laughs> that come with Skype. But I was joking with you before the show that like every time I open the app, somebody has moved a button. It's just 
there's not really a good reason for it, but they just like to move the buttons. So I never know where anything is. Uh, so I, I think these, these web-based podcasting and recording solutions are really what the future is for all of us. And I always like hearing people that are using, I haven't got brave enough to, to make the, the complete switch over to that yet. But, but this is really useful, not even just for podcasters. I think anybody who wants to record a conversation, like if you've got a family member and you just want to talk about family stories and get a nice recording for the future, uh, this is an app that would do that for you. And it makes it really easy for the person at the other end if they're not technically minded. Yeah, exactly. Or just, you know, recording, who knows, a conference call that's happening or something like that. Um, I think there's a lot of different applications. And yeah, as we, I mean, obviously we're getting more and more into this sort of like voice driven um, world. So I think these, you know, kind of technologies that allowed you to, to record voice are going to be increasingly important. Yeah, I really blew it. My mom used to tell the best stories about growing up in Massachusetts and and I listened to all the stories. It never occurred to me to record them, and now she's gone. And I try to share them with my kids, but boy, I wish I could have done it, you know, with her voice. Wouldn't be that hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something else that I use. Um, I use, and this is probably a pretty common one, I would imagine, uh, Sonos as well is kind of my uh, my go-to for, um, for music. I initially had like some some deep heartache because my iTunes playlists weren't syncing with Sonos, but we worked through that together and now it's working. <laughs> now, now did you, are you like me? Cause, cause Sonos to me started as a single speaker in my house and then like a virus, it took over and now I have Sonos almost everywhere. Yeah. It, what's funny because I, we had like a very tempestuous relationship initially, like, because, because it wasn't, I make tons of playlists and it wasn't syncing them. And like, you know, you like kind of don't quite understand how Sonos is going to work initially. Like you think it'll be like Bluetooth, but then it's like different, you know, you're like, oh, I can't play things right from iTunes. Okay. And you kind of have to like figure out what the actual relationship is. Um, but now it's working pretty well for me. So I was the other day, I was like, oh, maybe I need to get another, maybe I need to get another speaker. But then I had a housewarming party and it just like wouldn't work. Sonos wouldn't work for some reason. And I was like, what? Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I, I've gone completely overboard. We had a party at my house. I, I, I have some of the, the play ones that kind of move around. So, so we had a party and I, I put one in the bathroom. Yeah, I had music playing. I figured, why not throughout the house? And my friends all thought I was insane, just universally. <laughs> no, but I mean, like the seamlessness of it. Like I used to, in my old home, I used to, you know, I'd be listening to a podcast in my office and then I would like go to the kitchen to make lunch, you know, and kind of seamlessly transition it over there. Um, or just, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it is like a really, I mean, I think it's a really like seamless technology. You know, every once in a while I kind of have, have a glitch with it, but um, it's, it's pretty cool. Now, have you gone down the road of the lady in the can, like Alexa or, oh, sorry, I just triggered everybody's Amazon Echo or uh, Apple <laughs> HomePod. Have you tried any of that stuff? Oh my gosh. No, I'm one of those people who is like totally um, paranoid about that stuff. Like I, I, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want her listening to me. <laughs> yeah. I did think there was that thing that happened recently, which I'm sure you saw where Alexa was sort of like evilly yeah, laughs laughing at people. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. Like I was talking to my brother who's an artist about it. And I was like, this is like the type of art that you need to be making. Like some like hack into like, you know, people's echo dots or something. Yeah. Like it's kind of genius. <laughs> well, just, I mean, it was a bug and I forget. It was, it was hearing something, some command to make it laugh. But I mean, just of all the things it could do, it would just randomly laugh hysterically at you. I mean, I can't think of anything better than that. 
I know it's so creepy. <laughs> uh, any other apps that you uh, particularly like? I'm trying to think what else is uh, is on here that I haven't told you about that. Yeah, I it's okay, Jocelyn. I, I I like the fact that you uh, that you have really scaled back. I mean, it it kind of it kind of it's on brand for you, right? I mean, you don't you don't. It's totally on brand for me. No, and it's funny. I actually I made some notes about apps beforehand, and then I just and then I just kind of wrote underneath like like my my killer apps are face to face communication and pen and paper. <laughs> they've been, they've been beta tested for centuries <laughs> and they're extremely effective. <laughs> they don't need batteries. Nope. Uh, well, just real, just the one last point on the pen and paper thing, because you, you're using Evernote for a lot of your idea collection. Where does the pen and paper fit in for you? Oh, so many different places. I have so many notebooks on my desk right now. Um, I have, I will tell you what they all are. I have, um, I have a moleskin, like a black moleskin, a regular size in which I do kind of, um, you know, just journaling, you know, writing down ideas I'm thinking about quotes I'm thinking about. And again, there, like, I feel like the power of analog is that you end up just kind of returning to something again and again, as you kind of flip back through it in a way that I just don't find myself doing if I note something like that down in digital. Um, but so I have one moleskin that's devoted to kind of just like creative ideas. And then I have a smaller note skin, this, uh, excuse me, moleskin notebook that's actually devoted specifically just to like business ideas. So as I'm kind of constantly thinking about how to, um, evolve my business. And then I have, um, these, uh, nine by 12 sketch pads that I use, as I was saying for really like sketching out ideas. So I'm working on an online course and I was just sketching out ideas for that. In fact, I wrote an entire lesson like in longhand, like 10 pages. Now, is that like grid paper or is it just lined? It's just like, no, it's like a, no, it's like a, like a sketch pad. Like you would do like, you know, a pencil drawing on or something like a Strathmore sketchbook. Um, and then I have this, um, really cool little pad that I love. It's called, um, it's called like an FAF um, X, Exacomptopad. Um, and it's just this like kind of beautiful sort of vintagey looking little, um, I don't know, four by seven pad that I write all of my, uh, all of my daily to-do lists on. Um, it's just kind of like a nice, a nice looking analog desk accessory. It's like there's a whole market now for like, you know, fancy notebooks. Yeah, it's, it's Oh my gosh. It's a little out of control. I, I got the, uh, the one that hooked me is this Baron fig. Have you ever tried one of those? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I have the dot grid Baron fig. They make a gigantic one. that's like bigger than a normal one. And I love it. And I, I like it so much. I, I bought another one. And it's, so I don't want, once this one fills up, cause I'm at my rate, I'm going, I'm going to fill it up about every three months. I think I'm, I'm going to get, you know, I want I have to have my spare tire waiting for me. Yeah. Well, and I think there is something about you were talking about liking the large size of it. Like you know, and I, I deliberately use this kind of nine by 12 sketch pad when I'm brainstorming, you know, because I, there is something about having this kind of like larger canvas to play on that, um, I don't know, somehow really makes it feel like it's a little bit easier to think bigger. Um, you know, I think as opposed to sometimes maybe you're trying to like take notes or ideate like on your phone, there's something about just kind of like the physical size of the screen that can feel a little bit limiting, you know, and so kind of expanding the canvas and just like giving yourself a little bit of room to breathe is kind of nice sometimes. Do you go with the fancy pens and pencils too? Uh, I mean, I have like, not really, I have like flare plant, I have flare pens, you know, nothing like a paper mate flare plant, pen. Yeah, whatever works. Yeah. No, I mean, I try to be like, not, um, 
too obsessive about any of my tools. Like, like as you say, notebooks is, is like this whole kind of, you know, mass market industry now, but like, I will not let myself buy a notebook unless I literally have like finished a notebook and need another one because I feel like there's this, I don't know, there's something kind of weird about that. Like, um, I don't know. It's just sort of, I guess, a consumerism, you know, this idea that you know, you're trying to like, your creativity has been like transmuted into consumerism. So I try to just, you know, make sure that I'm actually like doing the creative work to warrant <laughs> additional consumerism of notebooks and so forth. And there's just something sad about a notebook that was made for ideas that doesn't have any ideas in it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Jocelyn, you know, it's funny. I I listen to your show. I, you know, I, I'm a fan and I've been listening and it's always fun when you meet someone that you feel like, you know, cause you've been listening to their podcast and you find out that they're just as delightful uh, when you talk to them as they are in their show. And that would be definitely you. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, now where can people find you? Uh, well, they can find, uh, me at jkglei.com and, uh, hurry slowly is at the hurry slowly website, which is hurry slowly.co. And of course the podcast is on iTunes as well. I, uh, so Jocelyn's finishing up her first season. And like I said, if any of this stuff tickled your brain today, I would recommend going and listening to, uh, hurry slowly. I think it's a great, accompanying podcast for the Mac power users. Cause we spend so much time talking about the technology. I do think, uh, having an idea about, you know, managing it and, and looking at it sanely is a, is a really good thing for everybody. So go check it out, uh, sign up for her newsletter. And, uh, we are the Mac power users. Katie's not here today, but she'll be here next week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are, uh, at Mac power users and, uh, we've got a Facebook group and we've got email. If you go to relay.fm slash NPU, but don't send us email. We're trying not to do so much of that. Send us a note on Twitter. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fracture, 1Password, Squarespace, and the Omni Group. We'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.